Jonathan Green. Welcome to this summer season of Blueprint for Living. Every week on Blueprint, uh, we look at the world through places, spaces, food, gardens and design. Well, this summer, we're going to take one of those elements each week for a deeper dive. In this hour, design. Uh, We'll discover, do typefaces have a gender? Uh, Who creates the world's most extreme hotel spaces? Why are there so many fountains with peeing little boys? And Colin Bissett will introduce us to the backstory of the Lazy Susan. Summer Blueprint, the design edition. All right, quick question. Um, Do typefaces have a gender? They greet us on on our clock faces in the morning, on updates on our screens, in advertising on our morning commutes. Ubiquitous in our culture and every little bit of type carries with it consciously or unconsciously values tastes so gender that surely is part of this formula Uh, marie boulanger is a type designer and author of the book xxxy sex letters and stereotypes and she joins us from her home in london marie welcome hi jonathan thanks for the welcome Type designer is, is, is a wonderful thing to be. <laughs> it certainly is. It's a very niche area of design and very specific, but um, it's you know one of those areas where you can just get lost in because there's so much to do, so much to study and so much to discover, including you know very important questions like, do typefaces have a gender? Describe for us then how gender manifests in, in, in various type styles. Is there a particular broad brush that you can you know, use to sort of illustrate this idea? Absolutely. Um, and I, I do want to start with saying that typefaces don't actually have a gender. You know, they're typefaces <laughs> in the same way that a table doesn't have a gender. But what's, what, what's interesting and what I explore in the book is that we ascribe so many human qualities to typefaces and you know it starts with the way that we describe them and um, even the words that we use specifically to talk about type like you know we will say the anatomy of a letter to talk about it when it's just you know a graphic shape Um, we'll talk about a letter's spine leg eye you know anatomical terms that we use for humans we are very comfortable with transposing to typefaces so that's kind of the starting point is how much of our own qualities we put in them. And I guess the kind of follow up from that and the broad brush I can start taking to explain how we put gender in that is that all of the stereotypes that we ascribe to humans, we're very, very willing to ascribe them to letters as well. Hmm. And that can come in the shape. Well, it can be, it can be visual. So it can be, you know, their aspect and what they look like and kind of physical stereotypes that we associate with certain genders we can do to typefaces as well but it also goes far beyond that it's also how we use them where we use them what we're willing to make with them so you know a sturdy franklin gothic has certain maleness about it whereas a a wispy uh, serif font is is perhaps feminine is that too crude (laughs) No, it isn't. I think one of the things that prompted me to write this book and to start this research was, you know, working in design agencies. And that's stuff that you would hear every day, you know, clients or um, directors saying this typeface choice is too feminine for this project or for this client. And the only thing feminine, well, I guess that you could call feminine about it would be that it was uh, a serif typeface. You know, what does that mean? And I think the way that I wanted to push it was to really explore the um, buildup of stereotypes through how they're used. So if you start to think about typefaces in categories of use, so, you know, things like display, decorative versus what is sometimes described as workhorse typefaces. So Mm. things for reading long bouts of text, etc. What's hiding in there? I'm, I'm, we need to sort of put this into a couple of parts. I mean, I'm particularly intrigued by that, that <laughs> idea of the where gender might lie in those workhorse typefaces. But let's go back one step from that. And I, I, what occurred to me before that is how much of sort of implied gender of, of the type is situational, is, is dependent on the actual use rather than the typeface itself. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And um, another thing that's explored in the research is type isn't ever just type. It's used somewhere for somebody. It's used in a layout. It's used with color. And what you start to get is like, I called it an onion of layers, you know, mm. of stereotypes. And you get these like big clusters of stereotypes, all visual, but tied through type. And uh, there are examples in the book, you know, of um, one that really stuck with me as a coloring book, children. Of course, you have one for boys and one for girls. And it's the same collection, same title, but different type on the cover for each one with different colors and different drawings as well. So you get this kind of like cluster of things that just push the typefaces really, really far into being perceived, sorry, as one gender or another. Is there such a thing as a typeface free of any of that association? Is there is there an anodyne typeface? Is is a Helvetica, for example? <laughs> Um, that's, I mean, the question makes me laugh because I work at Monotype now, um, <laughs> okay. who owns Helvetica. So this is a, it's a funny question to me, but there's actually quite a lot of research going on with that. And there, there have been quite a few typefaces recently, um, who have explored that question of, I guess, gender neutrality or trying to be hmm. a recent release by, oh God, I'm not, not going to remember the name, but I remember the typeface is called Epicene, I think. And I think the type foundry, sorry, is Klim Type from New Zealand. Check me on that. But I think they recently released something on that subject specifically. It's definitely like something that has picked up in recent years and that people are starting to explore. And I think the most interesting application is through branding because branding projects, you know, because it's derived from marketing and trying to sell to people and, you know, manufacturing products, trying to sell them to a specific group of people. Mm. Gender has historically been a huge part of that. That's for me where the most interesting parts play out because it's the most visible. Well, and it's interesting too, that as, as the culture moves to a far greater sensitivity of, of implied gender in all sorts of areas, it would start to look backward at you know the the role of things like type because I mean historically this this must be a, a sort of fiercely male preserve I imagine yes but also no um, what's been preserved is all of those very famous very respected male figures but there's also a lot of work being done to kind of uncover how many women. Uh, worked in tight foundries okay. and helped push forward so much of the tech and the IP that we still use and own today. I'm talking people doing PhDs on this specific topic. So yes, to your question, but just want to add a small caveat that, you know, it's also, it was also a choice to not make those women visible. Every Bodoni, there is there are women working in the shadows of, of those great names. Absolutely. And Bodoni is a great example because, um, his wife was instrumental in making his work published and known the way that we know it today. And, you know, I can't say that without her, there wouldn't have been a Bodoni, but maybe not. And she was a printer as well. And really, really was yeah instrumental in his work being what it is today. How, how much does the, does the, the sort of implied gender relationship influence the popularity of, of, of a typeface? Are there faces that are you know have been in in recent times very popular because of that that bit of code they carry with them i actually think sadly is the opposite i think that the ones that have been coined as feminine you know through all the things that we mentioned through certain branding codes and language and ways of explaining things have kind of suffered from that a little bit and if i talk about like script typefaces and things that are more on the decorative side of typefaces, I would definitely argue with you that, I mean, it's happened to me several times working in agencies or in publishing, publishing firms that, you know, you try to do something and you just want to use a script typeface because it fits the brief and it just comes back to you as, I'm sorry, this is too feminine. Yes. <laughs> What a disconcerting thing to have said, though. <laughs> I know. 
is that starting to shift? I mean, within the the, the type design fraternity, um, is, is is that sort of sense of what you're manipulating uh, beginning to change? Yes, I would definitely say so, specifically because, well, you know, type designers often work alongside agencies or branding contexts, and there is a huge shift there. I mean, at least what I can see is, especially if I'm thinking of historically very segmented categories, such as toiletries or like kids' toys, you know, stuff like that, that's historically been very, very divided. Remember the colouring book example I mentioned earlier? Mm. There is so much more awareness now um, to not, you know, segment as much because it doesn't really serve anybody. And you can see that being reflected in the type choices. So it comes, you know, there are kind of two sides to that coin. You have people who try to be neutral and who used, I mean, you can't see me right now, but I'm doing quote unquote <laughs> neutral typefaces. <laughs> um, neutral typefaces, whatever what, what, that what means. What font was your ear quote? <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Sign language. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people who are trying to be neutral, that's a whole other thing because, you know, I don't think you can ever really be neutral because you you inherit so many years of, you know, typeface use and uh, what it means and what it evokes to people. So being truly neutral is very hard, but you have people trying to do that. So, you know, if you're making like a gender neutral cosmetics brand, people trying to use very, very clean sans serif, very minimal weight variation typefaces to say, you know, we're saying as little as we can, basically, with this choice. And then you have people who kind of flip that on its head and are just a lot more free in how they use typefaces and kind of just free themselves from the notion that typefaces have a gender and, you know, just appreciate them for their formal and functional qualities, which I think is a much more interesting path to go down because only when we decide that we are the ones ascribing certain qualities to things, we can free ourselves, you know. What about in, in areas of, of what what should be uh, gender neutral, just functionality, um, railway platform signage, um, that kind of thing? What, what, what do those sort of public-facing type choices say in in general terms i think that when you have something like that you know something that is so large scale and encompasses so many different questions like accessibility legibility being able to you know read information quickly um also a huge variety of uses on loads of different pieces of design it kind of goes back to what i just said about choosing things for their formal and functional qualities like that should always be, you know, your main priority, solving problems through design and using the best pieces of design to help you do that. So when, well, I really don't think gender should even be a question when you're doing something like this, especially because you're meant to be speaking to everybody, right? If you're designing um, something like um, a real network identity or something like that. But it's um, it's interesting, actually. It makes me think of um, something that happened in France. Sorry, I'm going to be speaking about France a lot, but um, I am from there. <laughs> um, about two years ago, there was a big event on violence against women because it was meant to be like one of the big causes of um, Emmanuel Macron's presidency. And it was kind of like a week of like events and debates and making it a priority and all of that. And all of the visual communication was done using a very high contrast brush script typeface, which A, looked very bizarre because it's quite hard to read, you know, specifically thinking about social media campaigns or, you know, um, and that to me was definitely a sign of something that was completely backwards because I think they were thinking, oh, who's our audience women let's use a feminine typeface again quote unquote but they completely missed the mark thinking about is it legible does it make sense you know can people access this easily 
And it just goes to show that gender is absolutely not a useful component of typefaces. Because, you know, if you're thinking about that more than you are thinking about, can people read this? Can people access this? Does this make sense? Then, you know, you're completely backwards. Let's go to that that example you mentioned very early on of, of the sort of the workhorse, the pages of a book, say. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Oh, there are <laughs> there are so many debates on that. Um, a big question is one that I certainly asked myself is serif versus sans serif, you know. Um, where does gender sit in that? But really what I found and what I say in the book at some point is that thinking about just physical, I'm going to say physical, even though it's a weird word for typefaces, but physical qualities doesn't make sense because you just, there's a point where you just lose the argument. You know, where do you stop? Does it mean if you have a bigger weight, is it feminine or masculine? Because, you know, what proportions are feminine or masculine? You quickly kind of get nowhere. And that's why I bring in the use, um, the use of typefaces as a kind of really much deeper and more important dimension. And, you know, remember the onion, the visual, the visual aspect doesn't really get you anywhere. It's just a very flimsy first layer that people, you know, because it's the easiest thing to see. So it's what people stop on and I think it's what the people who designed the campaign for the violence against women thing stopped on but really they were building upon the um, ways of using typefaces and the cluster of stereotypes much more than just you know oh this is scripty it's feminine it's a wonderful thing that we are uh, are sitting down and, and, and parsing our culture for all these elements and all these aspects yeah um no it's it's I think it's humbling to kind of re-examine Yep, our culture and what we've been taught and told. One of the reasons I wrote this book was because I looked up for some research on this subject and I found absolutely nothing, like zero. And, you know, I thought this is something to be done, like this is something that needs to exist. And I could never have anticipated where this book took me, but, you know, I'm. I was contacted to be like a consultant on some branding projects, you know, specifically regarding gender and typeface choices. Um, I've been, you know, involved in discussions um, of that nature, you know, trying to kind of recalibrate where we are. And I think that's a very, very privileged position to be in. Indeed. Marie, thank you. The book currently is only available in French, as I understand. Is there an English translation in the wind? Uh, there is. It's ready. And I'm in talks with publishers and, you know, trying to make that happen. So Just sorting it's out a body definitely... font. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I have the typeface. It's all good. Um <laughs> Only chosen for legibility purposes. Um, <laughs> I just realised what uh, I said there in, in body font. There is an example of exactly, of yeah, yeah. What but that's. Say. I think it's one of the first things I say in the book. Like those words, you know, body and weight, and you know, it's it's really interesting. Um, but of course, I, as soon as the book gets out, I'll um, I'll send you one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you the, the book is xxxy sex letters and stereotypes uh yeah look keep keep your eye out for it in, in english translation or yes currently available superbly in french murray thank you thank you jonathan my guess motto is uh, if it's worth doing it's worth overdoing <laughs> you hear that uh, and instinctively, you you want to meet this person, maybe for cocktails, dinner, dance the night away, or or just chat. Uh, Bill Bensley, he has a new book. It's called More Escapism. Chapters from, from what 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 seems to be at this distance a decisively charmed life, the, the life of a man who at, at a young age chose adventure over convention. Uh, Bill is a designer. California-born, who took off to Southeast Asia the day after graduating from Harvard. We will ask about this. 30 years later, uh, he now runs two studios, one in Bangkok, the other in Bali, and and has a design portfolio of, of some of the region's most delightfully, amusingly extravagant hotels and resorts. There's even a palace in there somewhere, as there would be. Bill, welcome. (laughs) <laughs> what a great introduction. Well, that's, that's you, Bill. I mean, 
That was terrific. Tell us about the flight from Harvard. I'm intrigued by that. The flight from Harvard, well, that was rather a fluke, right, is that on graduation day, you got it exactly right, on graduation day, I asked my classmate, Lech Bunak, who is a, actually now a famous architect here in Thailand, where he was going. And he, he said, I'm going to Singapore. And I said, well, where the hell is that? <laughs> being American and not being very well acquainted with the world. And he said, it's under China. And I said, well, can I come? And then he said, sure. So a couple of months later, after traveling through Europe, on $7.56 a day, I kept records. <laughs> I ended up on his doorstep. And the next day I got a job at Belt Collins. And the next week I was in Bali designing gardens for the Bali Hyatt. Were your countrymen named a guy called Michael White or Madi Wajaya? What a superb trajectory. I, I can't actually, though, think of any more useless piece of um, directional information than under China. <laughs> 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 However, it seems to have worked out okay. Escapism. Tell me about that. I mean, the perfect escapist retreat, what does that need to have? The perfect escape retreat? I, well, what for me, personally, I, I think it means uh, lots and lots of space. Um, so, for example, Shintamani Wild, I think, is perfect. the perfect escapism where each tent has something like you know, 100 meters of river and waterfalls. Uh, it's some place where you can scream delightfully and be in a bathtub outside <laughs> and not disturb anybody. <laughs> yes. When I was throwing this idea around in my mind, I, I, if I want to escape, I, yes, I want some sort of sense of, of privacy, of sanctuary, of of natural intrusion in a way, and yet I want everything delivered to me, you know, <laughs> without effort. I, I want this sort of strange combination of of luxury and removal from the mechanism of that luxury. It's an interesting deception. Absolutely. I think you got it just perfect. How do you create that? How do you create that? Well, you have to have to, one, listen to your client, and you have to be a storyteller, uh, you have to work with the hotelier, the hotel operators, and, and figure out what they want and put it all in the pot and cook it up. And three or four late, years later, something arrives. And after you've done it for 150 times, it becomes easier. <laughs> I bet. That idea of being a storyteller, how, how do you settle on, on what that story is? How do you work that out in a place? Well, gosh, that's a really good question. You know, it can vary so much from being something like something very simple, like Shintamani Wild, for example, what we just talked about. That is a project in which we bought something like a thousand hectares of land and at an auction for a titanium mine in the middle of a Cambodian national forest. So I could have gone into that forest and, and dug it all up and, and made myself rich on titanium or supposedly rich on titanium and lumber, but not being of that ilk on this life anyways, I decided not to, uh, and to to create this wonderful 15-tent property that protects and is the um, the policeman of the Southern National Cardamom Forest. We work with a company called Wildlife Alliance, which has 110 private army personnel, each of them carrying AK-47s that protect this wildlife in a, in a private army, not with the government, protects this wildlife every single day. So that's one story. Hmm. Another story could be as silly as I find inspiration from a, a hat that I found in a, in a Paris antique clothing shop. <laughs> that's a true story too. Where did that hat story lead? <laughs> How was that realized? I found a hat, which was a, a Vietnamese hat, uh, you know, the conical style farmer's hat, but it was covered in a pink and white polka dot 1920s fabric. I'm intrigued. So the, the hat itself spoke to me immediately and I rushed in and bought the hat and it, be, it became the driver for one entire hotel called Hotel de la Cupola, which is in Sapan, North Vietnam. And that that hat was a really simple idea of how the tribes of Vietnam 
influenced the haute couture of France in the 1920s. So I built an entire hotel around that. So, so then as I walk into that hotel, I mean, paint this picture for me. What, what do I see? How does how do you, how do you make me feel that sense of of, of tribalism and haute couture? Well, uh, for example, that one hat is is flying through the air. I bought that hat plus another two hundred uh, over the reception desk. I have these hats being blown by a hidden fan, and they're flying through the the lobby in very in a very delightful fashion. Haberdashery is blown to hell by way of a typhoon. That's <laughs> and then then every single piece of furniture is is something like a French piece of furniture, but covered with hill-tried fabrics, for example. And every, every uh, chandelier, for example, might be a French in, in its form, but it's being decorated by way of silver hill-tried jewelry. For example, and that, that's one of 700 examples. And it's very colorful. So to go to that motto, if, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. I'm, I'm, getting a set, I'm getting a sense of how that operates in real life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's the most absurd thing you've ever put into a design? Oh, gosh. Well, you know what? I'm going to let you in on a secret. It was my, my worst mistake ever. The most worst okay. absurd mistake <laughs> ever is that when back in 19... 89, when I first started my own company, I had a project in Singapore and it was a, it was a private, private club. And I put in the bottom of the swimming pool of that private club, the yellow submarine. And, <laughs> and, and it was, as you say, absolutely absurd. It was dangerous. It, it was the worst thing I'd ever done. It got ripped out a year later. And I learned my lesson. <laughs> no more yellow submarines. <laughs> no more yellow submarines. Yeah, we put a halt to that one. So this book, it, it details uh, 12 projects. Are, are there points of similarity here? Is there a, a narrative that's emerged in your work, do you think, a theme? Well, I, I for many years, have said that I have no style whatsoever. Um, <laughs> in that if you were my client, you wouldn't want me and I, I built a, a $50 million, $100 million uh, resort for you. You wouldn't want me to do something similar for the next client. Yep. So I've tried very hard not to repeat anything ever for the last 35 years. And while I like, while I like every, everything to be recycled, I'm a big proponent of recycling furniture and recycling everything, including I'm making an entire hotel now out of used train cars, train carriages. <laughs> um, so while, I, while I'm a proponent of, of things that are green, very much so, and conservation, I, I, I like to think that there's not a consistent thread in my projects. It must be exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful thing to feel, having clearly worked so hard and so assiduously. There's, I mean, there's great theatre in what you create, and I suppose that's that's part of what we embark on as 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 tourists when we go to a place. We we want that sense of of revelation, that sense of theatre, that that sense of something above the ordinary. Well, I think so. I think that that. Theater is very much aligned with the designing of hotels. In fact, I think opening a hotel is very much like the opening of a Hollywood movie in that it has to be directed. But the moment that you open the front doors, it's like the opening night of a movie. You either make it or you break it. And yet there seems to be an assumption if you look at the, you know, the, the general run of, of hotel design that what people want is a certain... Uh, comforting sterility. <laughs> I love those words, comforting <laughs> sterility. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. You can't accuse my projects as being sterile. That's for sure. Why, why do Why do other hotels, though, in the main, opt for that that sense of corporatized blandness? What's going on well, there? Um, what's going on there? I think that most hotel companies and 
directors, people that are making new hotels, they believe that um, beige on beige is a safe approach and everybody's, everybody's going to like it. But I take the, the approach that, that it's not safe, that um, if you build a hotel for everybody, i.e. beige on beige, you build it for no one because there's so many people and there's so many choices of hotels. I believe it's so important to build something that's that really says something that makes a statement, whether it's about used train cars or or conservation or about a Vietnamese hat. Um, you, you've got to say something and it has to be a strong statement that stands out in the field of how did you describe it? I, I couldn't begin to remember. Okay. <laughs> uh, sterile sterility. Or One something. of those, yes. <laughs> yeah. so I'm wondering too, I mean, you, you, you create this extraordinariness. Let's, let's go back to the Vietnamese hat sailing in their typhoon above the reception desk. What's the lifespan of that? I mean, do you need to go back in, in 10 years and, and rethink that space or do those hats whirl forever? Well, that's a very good question in that I know I'm going, as a matter of fact, I'm going back there today. There's so many of our projects, especially with our best clients, we revisit, you know, every year to act as the visual policeman. So I'll, I'll walk around there and troubleshoot because hmm. every general manager has, after we open, has problems. Things fall apart. You know, the, you know, the hats fly out of the, fly out of the window. The last day that I was up there in Sapa, where the flying hats are, I, this is a true story. A Vietnamese lady pulled up in her car and she started to take the pillows off the sofas in the lobby and put them in the, in the trunk of her car. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, wait a second. Who are you and why are you doing this? <laughs> And she screamed at me in Vietnamese. And then anyways, I got the bellboys to stop her. We took all the pillows out of her car <laughs> and put them back where they were. And we sent her on her way. Yeah, you've got to go back to your, your babies. That's what I call them. And, and help, troubleshoot. This, this is your second book, Escapism, the first, and, and more Escapism, the current volume. Is, is it important to document that work, to, to get that, that, that permanent record? Well, I think it is because I'm very proud of what we do. And if you don't, if you don't document it, you know, it's, it's lost to history. And, and, and as you know, in the, in the hotel business, most hotels have a life of maybe five years where they're, they're new and sparkling and they're the place to go. So I think it's important to do something every, every three or four or five years. That documents what you've done. And the, and they're also the renovations that you've done. And in mm. that book, More Escapism, there's three projects there, which are Four Seasons projects that we started 25 years ago. But we're involved in it, like you say, every year. And we've done some beautiful renovations. So they're in the book as well. Bill, it's a treat to meet. Uh, well, I guess it's cocktail time now. We can we can slope off and amuse ourselves for the evening. A bit early for me. <laughs> okay. I thought you were extreme. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. Uh, Bill Bensley, he's author of More Escapism, Hotels, Resorts and Gardens. Uh, you'll find that book in, in shops and libraries. Have you ever stopped to ponder, and, and we like to ask these big questions here on Blueprint, why are there so many fountains featuring little boys peeing? It's a big question and, and one that we're going to grapple with right now. There's a famous one, of course, in, in the streets of Brussels, the delightfully named Mannequin Piss. It's an extremely famous bronze statue, a little boy peeing into a basin. But where does that come from? Why is that a, a, a motif which is so often repeated? Amy Boyington uh, can help us. She's an architectural historian co-author of the paper The Problems of Meaning and Use of the Pura Mingans Motif in Fountain Design, 1400 to 1700. She joins us now. Amy, welcome. Hello, thank you very much. Now that expression, whose pronunciation I mangled <laughs> in your title. <laughs> the, the, the Pura Mingans, what is that? 
Um, so the Pyramingans motif, it's been used in art and sculpture and fountains um, for quite a few centuries. And it, use, it usually depicts a small boy aged about two or three, and he's normally urinating. And he can often be depicted as a cherub, a cupid, pato, or spiritello, as, as had the um, Italians say. And it often um, has many different meanings. So just to give you a few, um, sometimes uh, represent charity and abundance, fertility and fecundity, purity and cleansing, bacchanalia and abandonment, and of course, humour, because they are quite funny to look at. That's quite a range. <laughs> <laughs> is it not? I mean, and, and I'm curious too as to how do we define which meaning is implied in these in these particular works? Yeah, so that can be quite tricky. So when I was doing this research, it, you have to look at the context in which they were commissioned. So who you know wanted this fountain to be built? At what time was it built? And you know where was the location? So for example, was it in a garden? Was it in a city? And then you can kind of work out what it might have meant. But you spoke about the mannequin piss, for example, in Brussels. So today, that's actually now kind of referred to as the symbol of Brussels. And this is a big tourist attraction because people love to go and see it. But its original meaning has kind of been lost to history because um, no one wrote down, oh, why, why are we going to create this little fountain with a little boy peeing into a basin? But there is one story that goes that it actually represents the infant Duke of Brabant. So it was commissioned in 1619. And this was sort of looking back into history because the Duke of uh, Brabant, who and he was alive in the 12th century, so that's you know, a lot um, far into the past. And it is said, though, that whilst he was still in his cradle, this little boy um, inspired his troops to victory by a physical gesture of contempt. That is to say, by urinating. (laughs) So (laughs) he was sort of peeing in the face of his enemy. And as a result, later, you know, in the 17th century, they decided that this would be a good symbol for Brussels at the time. It's wonderful to hear these stories because, I mean, on on the face of it, a little boy peeing in a fountain, it's it's just a a method of water delivery. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's bizarre. But there are other theories that say that the mannequin piss actually was sort of commissioned as a just a very fashionable fountain because it was very popular at that time. So it might just as easily have been commissioned to represent the bountifulness of the city of Brussels or the prosperity of its people. Well, speaking of bountiful, I mean, that takes us to one of the earlier examples of this kind of form, and that's the the statue of Priapus in Pompeii. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Not a little boy. <laughs> no, so um, people often ask me, like, where does this sort of, you know, urinating boy come from? And the motif can sort of be traced back to the, uh, to antiquity, but um, different variations of it are found there. So, for example, as you mentioned, Priapus, it's, these are adult examples. So um, Priapus was found in the house of Betty in Pompeii, and there um, the, he's the god of fertility. And I can't believe I'm going to be saying this, but he has a very large erect phallus uh, with a hole running through, which obviously suggests to historians that it was once used as a fountain. And in this particular instance, the water flowing from um, Priapus's um, penis would certainly have been a symbolic of semen and therefore would have been a representation of power, prosperity, as well as virility and fertility of that family, which is kind of unusual, I guess. Well, then Pompeii was that kind of a place by by all accounts. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I know. And there's actually another adult version called the Hercules Mingans. And so... So this is also found in antiquity and there's a surviving fountain example located in the Archaeological Museum in Tunisia. 
And in that particular example, the hero Hercules, he's depicted completely drunk in the middle of peeing. And um, it's sort of meant to represent abandonment, you know, sort of humour and sort of just letting yourself go. And so it's said that this may have inspired the Puramingans motif, the children version of it, because children, you know, can they just pee. They don't necessarily think about it or worry about it. So it's that abandonment and sort of pure of heart kind of vibe. Of course, urination is not a gendered activity. I mean, <laughs> any examples of little girls in fountains? Um, so not so much. I think there is a, a more modern version in, oh, I can't remember. There's it, one of the ten cities in Europe, there is a modern version of a little girl squatting and peeing but that wasn't so much a fashionable motif in history so yeah less less of a less of a motif there where, when did the the Pyramingans motif where, when did that reach its its height of, of, of popularity and execution mm, so this was a very very popular um and it reached the height of its popularity in the 16th and 17th centuries in europe so during the renaissance all the way through to the baroque and then it really quite dramatically fell from favour in the following century. So, for example, by the 19th century, we can't really find any examples. And this might very well be due to the, you know, sort of the prim and proper sort of attitude that, well, the Victorians in the UK had, but that there was a similar sort of um, thought and feeling throughout Europe. But... Um, Throughout Europe, during this, you know, the Baroque times and the Renaissance times, so sometimes they were used in gardens, sometimes they were used in cities, and they were, as I mentioned before, they represented different times. So I can give an example if you're interested. Would you like to hear about some? Of course. Yes, please. Okay. So in Prague, in the Wallerstein Garden, there's a fountain there dating to 1599, and it's called the Venus Fountain, or another name is Venus with Amor and Dolphin. And this is quite interesting because it features a naked, lactating Venus holding hands with Cupid, and Cupid is standing on a dolphin whilst urinating. And so both Venus and Cupid are also spitting water simultaneously. So Altogether, this composition um, sort of it represents love and fertility. And this is another sort of train of thought with the lactating fountains. That was also seen throughout Europe during this time. And you also get you often get the pairing between the urinating pyramingans and the um, lactating Venus or the lactating goddess. So I thought that was, you know, it's quite interesting to talk about. Yes. Well, I give extra points of a degree of difficulty for urinating while standing on a dolphin. I, think. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> uh, but the same sort of composition can be used to mean different things. So uh, a similar fountain um, in Copenhagen in Denmark is called the Charity Fountain. And in that particular um, composition, there's a bronze fountain depicting the goddess Charity. And she is pregnant. She's holding a baby in her left arm. And then at the same time, she's resting her right hand on the head of a small boy by her side. So, you know, probably her son. And water flows through her breasts. And the, the little boy is also urinating. And this whole thing is said to um, sort of symbolise charity and the charity and benevolence of the king. And we can kind of get that because it was commissioned by Christian IV in 1609. And this fountain became one of the main water supplies to the city. So we can see ah. it was representing his benevolence and his sort of charity to the city. This was a, an act of good public, you know, sort of will. The same same characters can be used to mean different things. There's a, I mean, there's a slight subtext, though, in, in taking your water supply from a urinating boy. It's a... I know. <laughs> but the thing is, at, during this time, because um, children, you know, are seen as pure, the water um, from a little boy was considered to be pure water, cleansing water. It was clean and uh, it had different connotations back then. It was just a, a purer pure of heart type of thing. They could also be playful. Um, there, are, there are some jets that, 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 know, that intended to take the, the bystander by surprise. Yes, that's true. So um, 
So we don't have any examples of the Pyramidians being a humor. Well, it is a humorous motif, but during this time, lots of these fountains were sort of incorporated into trick fountains where um, you're meant to sort of surprise onlookers by suddenly soaking them because they be looking at a fountain thinking, oh, how lovely, maybe that's a statue. And then all of a sudden they get absolutely soaked with water. So it was um, definitely humorous. And although we don't have any surviving examples of the Pyramingans motif, you know, suddenly turning on, I'm sure it was incorporated during that time because it was a humorous and theatrical experience. Did we know anything? We were talking here about, you know, sort of a classical um, style in the sort of the Greco-Roman sort of vocabulary mm. visually. But, of course, fountains are things which occur outside of that European culture. Um, yes. Do we know if these sorts of motifs were used in, say, the, the fountains of North Africa? Um, I don't, yeah, I'm, I don't know if any examples but that I mean I don't know them all but there might well have been I think there were definitely some it, it, it went over to America definitely during the um, you know the sort of 18 well definitely the 18th century and I think it spread down to South um, America but I can't think of any examples off the top of my head but the lactating fountains certainly did and they were sort of the popularity of those continued a bit longer than the Pyramingans motif and of course the, the Pyramingans is it's, I mean, if you go to garden supply shops anywhere in the world, you will probably be able to pick up uh, a peeing boy if that's what you want in your front yard. Yes, yeah, I think so. And I think maybe because uh, it only, requ only requires one pipe, you know, to uh, work as a fountain, <laughs> a lactating one requires two, so maybe that's a bit more tricky to maintain. And that's one of the reasons actually why these fountains fell out of favour during the latter centuries because they were often part of a larger composition and required many pipes. So the ones I just mentioned with the Venus and the Cupid and, you know, the spitting, lactating and urinating, that's a lot of lot of sort of spouts and pipes for one single fountain. So sort of fell out of favour as a result. Amy, how wonderful. D tremendous to be able to pick your brain um, on this, this slightly arcane but nonetheless fascinating topic. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It was a lovely to do this. Thank you. Amy Boynton, Senior Properties Historian at uh, English Heritage and, and co-author of that 2020 paper, the, the Problems of Meaning and Use of the Pura Mingans Motif in Fountain Design, 1400 to 1700. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Green and I have questions. I have questions about the world, like how many people in Paris live within five minutes of a bakery? Hmm, I'll ask a taxi driver. Well, that cleared that up. Uh, here's another one. If you were getting Elvis to marry you in Las Vegas, what would he sing? I'm on that highway down to Vegas. I'm rolling through the early morning light. I've heard it said, Chad, that, that, that wise men say that don't only fools rush in. That's what I've heard. But I can't help falling in love with you. Pretty nicely done. And where does rubber come from? You know something? I've always wanted to go to a rubber plantation and tap a rubber tree for its sap. Just down. Oh. oh no! Well, <laughs> that ended well. Are you curious about the world around you? Well, join me for a new season of Return Ticket, the podcast that takes you to places and spaces near and far for experiences both familiar and unexpected. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Uh, we'll even answer that burning question of our time. Why is Tasmania so terrible? The problem is it looks nice, but underneath that idyllic, bucolic, rolling hills and virgin forests is a seething, dystopian hellscape. It's awful. Mostly snakes, actually. Return Ticket, Season 2, coming soon and then forever on the ABC Listen app.
time now on Summer Blueprint for Living for an icon. Each week, they're presented by author and design commentator Colin Bissett. Whoever Susan was, I'm sure she didn't appreciate being called lazy especially when the device named the Lazy Susan does such a fine job of ensuring everyone gets a decent stab at the dishes on offer. The Lazy Susan is such a fixture of Chinese restaurants that it would appear to be a Chinese invention, and yet its genesis is rather hazy. Some say that it was Thomas Jefferson who named it after a dippy daughter. There's no evidence for that, but Jefferson, who designed his own splendid house, Monticello, in the late 1700s, was certainly a fan of things that revolved. His home, now a museum, displays his adaptations of ordinary furniture, placing a traditional Windsor chair on a pivot so that it swivelled, and a revolving table and a revolving bookstand so that he could work at either without having to clear anything away. That revolving table echoes one used in 13th century China to set out blocks of characters to be used in printing. The revolving bookcase became a popular feature of sitting rooms in the Victorian era, with four sides of shelving in one compact piece, which could be spun to reveal the book of your choice. Of course, the revolving bookcase has long been a cliché in adventure films, revealing secret tunnels if you knew precisely which book to press. There are no secrets with the Lazy Susan, though. That's its point, to hide nothing and put everything within reach. Their popularity in Chinese restaurants goes back to 1950s Chinatown in San Francisco, when restaurant owner Johnny Can installed them on his tables with a design using ball bearings created by an engineer friend. There was a precedent in an idea written about by a Malaysian doctor, Dr Wu Lian Tei, who designed a hygienic dining tray in 1917, after seeing people eating directly from a communal dish using their chopsticks, potentially spreading contagion. A spinning tray would have each diner spooning food into his own bowl before digging in, but there's no record of it ever being produced. There was also the self-waiting table, designed by an inventor in Missouri, Elizabeth Howell, to make up for the lack of a waiter with a revolving platter set on casters in the middle of the table, also never making production. It seems, therefore, that the Lazy Susan's fame indeed spread from that first use in Chinatown restaurants in America. They may be ubiquitous in mainland China now, but they were first seen on the restaurant tables of the most westernised cities in China in the 20th century. Whoever she is, once Lazy Susan spins into action, she is, indeed, a busy and most helpful dining assistant, giving everyone at the table a fair chance to fill their plates. Democratic and always on hand, she is, undeniably, the Lazy Diner's best friend. Colin, thank you. And all Colin's icons, all the blueprint stuff, you can find it all on the ABC Listen app. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.